I think we all have a favorite confessor that we like to go to, but can you imagine hiking several miles on foot just to go to confession to your favorite confessor? In this story of St. John Bosco, there are 300 young men who hike a great distance just to go to confession to him. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Young people feel generous toward those who sincerely love them and seek their proper good. For example, crowds of children and young people flock to the person of Jesus Christ, the divine savior, for he loved them far more than a tender father loves his children. And St. Philip Neri, the apostle of Rome, went everywhere surrounded by young people, for he treated them with unequaled goodness. The same was true of St. John Bosco who was greatly loved by his youngsters, and the facts I'm about to narrate are indisputable proof of this. In addition to the work of the oratory, Don Bosco also performed sacred ministry in the prisons, in the Contalengo hospice, and at the refuge, so very little free time was left to him. His days were so busy that he had to study and work at night to write his books. This long and arduous work nearly cost him his life, and his health deteriorated so severely that his doctors advised him to stop working and rest if he didn't want to die in the prime of his life. Don Borel, who loved him as a brother, saw him in danger. He sent Don Bosco to spend some time in the house of the excellent theologian Pietro Abondiolio, pastor of Sassi, a suburb of Turin. Don Bosco rested there on weekdays. On Saturday evenings, he returned to the city to spend each Sunday with his young students. Despite the good pastor's charitable attention and the healthy air, this time of rest did not benefit Don Bosco the way he needed. One reason was that he was working as the assistant parish priest because he didn't remain idle for a single moment. Another reason was that the suburb was so close to Turin. Hence, the boys of the oratory often visited him in Sassi. Together with the town's young people, they did much work for him. And not only the boys of the oratory ran to Sassi, so did the students of the Brothers of the Christian Schools, who once placed him in an embarrassing situation. This account comes from Signor Carlo Rapetti, who was then bursar in the College of St. Primitive and from others present. Among the schools wisely directed by the previously mentioned religious were the municipal schools of Turin, called Santa Barbara, attended by several hundred youngsters. Don Bosco went there every week to hear confessions in the adjoining chapel. Some came to him at the oratory, and almost all were his penitents. In the late spring of that year, they were given spiritual exercises for a number of days. They waited for Don Bosco during their sacred retreat, hoping he would come as usual. Almost none of them considered confessing to the other priests that were available. Finally, the closing day of the retreat came around, and not having seen Don Bosco the entire time, the retreat participants went to look for him in Valdoco with the permission of their teachers. Not finding him there either, and hearing that he was in Sassi, they set out to walk there, believing the suburb was only a short distance from Turin. They didn't realize that they had several kilometers to travel both ways. They should have ceased their trek and returned to their college when they realized that they had to leave the city and cross the Po River. But wise thinking was never the virtue of youth, and those boys listened only to the voice of their hearts. 
So they continued on. The weather was rainy and they reached an unfamiliar location. They lost their way and searched for Don Bosco through the meadows, fields, and vineyards. The people who met them asked, where are you going? Who are you looking for? We're going to Sasi and looking for Don Bosco, they answered. Where is Sasi? Where is Don Bosco? Oh, you're going the wrong way, answered the peasants. You have to go back and climb the hills. Who is Don Bosco anyway? We don't know him. The parish priest of Sasi isn't called Bosco. No priest there bears that name. The wandering youth replied, We were told that Don Bosco is in Saucy, so we must be there. At last, directed back to the right path, they came to the parish. Three hundred young men, sweaty, splashed with mud, so exhausted with fatigue and hunger that it was impossible not to have pity on them. Don Bosco was called in, and he was greatly moved upon seeing that crowd of his little friends. What do you want, my dear children? He asked them. Do you have permission from your teachers to come here? One boy answered for all. We've been doing the spiritual exercises for a number of days now. This morning we finished them, and we want to make our confessions to you. Last night we waited for you in vain in Santa Barbara. When we didn't see you by this morning, with our teacher's permission, we left early to seek you in Valdoco, and from there we came here. We didn't say anything to the college superior because we thought we could return to the college for mass and communion. So many of us still need to make our general and annual confessions. Imagine the amazement of Don Bosco and his hosts. They couldn't help but admire that youthful energy and inspiration. Nevertheless, they tried to induce the boys to return to college quickly to relieve the anxiety of their teachers and relatives but they might as well have thrown their words into the wind because they ended up yielding to the boys' wishes. In the meantime, Don Bosco and the other pastors found themselves greatly embarrassed. How could they hurry along such a great multitude of young people who wanted to make a general or annual confession? How could they all return in time to the college for communion? Besides, a dozen priests wouldn't have been enough to hear their confessions, and they all wanted to confess only to Don Bosco. The pastors found it easier to persuade them that this was impossible and that they had to postpone receiving communion until the next day. Don Bosco went into the confessional, though he was almost exhausted of all his strength. The parish priest, the assistant pastor, and the communion master likewise entered the confessional. He remained there until an hour after noon without entirely satisfying the piety of those young men. There was another problem. In leaving Turin, those boys had done as the crowds who followed Jesus in the desert. Concerned only with seeking Don Bosco and confessing to him, they had left without any food because they thought they would return home before breakfast. So in addition to everything else, they had to be fed. Not being able to work Christ's miracle of the multiplication of the loaves, the good pastor nonetheless didn't abandon Don Bosco's boys and did his best to satisfy their hunger. He put out bread, polenta, beans, rice, potatoes, fruit, and cheese. In short, whatever food he possessed, he placed it all before the starving guests. But what he had at home was insufficient, so he had to borrow food from neighbors. In this way, that youthful army received the necessary refreshment, and no one fainted on the way back to Turin. But if Don Bosco and his generous host were embarrassed that morning, imagine what a surprise was in store for all the teachers of the Christian schools, the preachers of the spiritual exercises, and other guests. 
At the hour appointed for Mass and General Communion, out of 400 students, only a few dozen were present. All the others had either hiked to Sasi or had wandered off for the moment. From these facts, we can readily see how much Don Bosco was beloved by the young men who knew him. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to see a playlist of all the stories you really need to hear about St. John Bosco, please click on the link I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Let's go, boy! In today's story, I'm going to tell you about two predictions Don Bosco made that came true about a certain young man named Giovanni Cagliero. One, that he would recover from his deadly typhoid fever, and two, that he would be a bishop and go on to establish religious houses in South America. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. When young Giovanni Cagliero became ill, Mary Most Holy gave additional proof of her protection of the children of the oratory and her approval of their work. Don Rua wrote, When earthly medicine could offer no hope, Don Bosco recommended that the young man invoke Our Lady's intervention. He announced that the sick man would be healed, and I was amazed to see that prophecy fulfilled. One day, late in August, Giovanni Cagliero was exhausted from caring for the sick during the cholera epidemic and returned home from the clinic. He felt ill and had to lie down, but he had not contracted cholera. It was typhoid fever. Don Bosco devoted all possible care to saving Cagliero from the terrible fever that afflicted him for almost two months. Given the seriousness of his illness, Cagliero went to confession and received Holy Communion, but his fever progressed so quickly that his condition became critical. Don Bosco had publicly announced that none of his young men would die of cholera if they kept themselves in the state of grace. Cagliero, who was 16 years old, fully trusted Don Bosco's words, but his illness was not cholera. Everyone in the oratory believed that Cagliero would die at any moment. Two famous doctors of Turin, Galvano and Bellinieri, declared him to be a hopeless cause and told Don Bosco to administer the last sacraments to him because he wouldn't live through the night. Our saint went immediately to his room for this purpose, but upon entering Cagliero's room, he stopped on the threshold when a marvelous vision appeared before him. It was a beautiful dove, flashing with light that filled the entire room. The dove carried an olive branch in its beak. It circled the sick boy's bed, touched his lips with the olive branch, and landed on his head. Then the dove disappeared with an even brighter flash of light. Don Bosco then realized that Cagliero wouldn't die and that he still had many works to carry out for the glory of God because the olive branch meant that he would live to preach peace in the world. The splendor of the dove signified that the Holy Spirit would clothe Cagliero in the fullness of grace. From that moment, Don Bosco firmly believed that the young man would become a bishop, and this prediction was fulfilled when Cagliero later established five religious houses in Uruguay and Argentina. Then the walls of the room faded away, and many indigenous persons appeared around the bed who gazed at the sick man and trembled as they seemed to ask Cagliero for help. 
Two of the men in the vision stood out from the others. One was dark-skinned, and the other was tall with a warlike bearing and copper skin, giving off a certain air of goodness. Don Bosco later learned that these two men represented the native peoples of Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego. Both of these visions lasted only for a few brief moments, with the sick young man and onlookers oblivious to it all. With his usual calm manner and kind smile, Don Bosco slowly approached the bed and Caliero asked, Is this perhaps my last confession? Why do you ask me this question? Because I want to know if I'll die. Don Bosco collected himself and asked, Giovanni, what would you rather do? Go to heaven now or get well and wait a little longer for your reward? Well, Don Bosco, he said, I choose whatever is best for me. It would certainly be better for you to go to heaven now, but it's not yet your time. Our Lord doesn't want you to die now. You still have many good things to do. You will recover and put on a priest's habit as you have always wanted. You will become a priest. At this point, Don Bosco paused thoughtfully before continuing, and with your breviary in hand, you will go far, far away. However, Don Bosco didn't tell the young man where he would go. Caliero exclaimed, If that's how it is, I don't need to prepare to receive the sacraments. My conscience is clear, so I'll wait to confess when I'm out of bed and can receive all the sacraments with my companions. So be it, Don Bosco said. You can wait till you're up and about. From that moment on, Caliero gave no more thought to death. Despite the seriousness of his illness, he believed his recovery to be inevitable, and before long, he improved. When all danger seemed over, his relatives sent him excellent grapes in September as a treat. However, he ate too many and dangerously relapsed. His mother had to be called to his bedside from Castelnuovo. When she entered his room and saw her son's condition, she exclaimed, My Giovanni is already gone. As far as I can see, he's beyond help. But, overjoyed at his mother's arrival, Giovanni began to ask her to make him a cassock with all the other priestly accessories because he was soon to wear it. His good mother thought her son was delirious, so she told Don Bosco, My boy is really ill. He rambles on and on and talks to me about dressing in a priest's habit and tells me to prepare everything he'll need for the priesthood. No, my good Teresa, said Don Bosco. Your son isn't delirious. In fact, his mind is remarkably clear. Prepare for him everything necessary to dress him as a cleric. He still has many things to do and has no desire to die. Don't you see, mother? said Caliero smugly. You'll make me a cassock and Don Bosco will put it on me. This remark seemed to make her cry even more and Don Bosco tried to reassure her and emphasize that she would soon see her son become a priest. But the good mother left, murmuring, They'll put any robe on you when they put you in the coffin. Caliero was moved to his parents' home to recover. To anyone who visited him, Caliero spoke cheerfully about the clerical robe he would soon wear. Indeed, as God willed, he regained his strength somewhat, and his mother led him to the village. Caliero looked like a skeleton. He was frail and needed to lean on a cane to stand or walk. He kept insisting that his mother prepare his cassock. The good mother decided to satisfy him. 
When people saw her busily sewing, they asked, What are you doing, Teresa? I am preparing a cassock for my son, she always said. But he's half dead. He can't even stand up straight, they observed. My son wants it that way, she replied. The day set for his investiture was approaching, and Cagliaro prepared to return to Turin. Cagliaro's friends and relatives were trying to discourage him because he still wasn't fully recovered. They told him to postpone his trip, but he replied, Not at all. I need to receive the cassock now because Don Bosco told me to. Others said he was too young. It doesn't matter, Cagliaro retorted. Don Bosco gave his approval. By coincidence, the day he was to leave for the oratory was also the day of his brother's wedding. His brother begged him to attend the celebration, but he replied, You chose the bride you wanted, and so will I, by which he meant becoming a priest. His relatives said that if he left, he was implying that he disapproved of his brother's choice of bride. But I'm delighted with the choice he's made, Cagliaro protested. What more need I say? Do I need to put this in writing and have it notarized? Cagliaro returned to the oratory on November 21st, fully recovered, and on the 22nd, the Feast of St. Cecilia, Don Bosco blessed Cagliaro's cassock and clothed his beloved son in it, as he said he would. Meanwhile, Don Bosco couldn't forget the visions of the dove and the indigenous people and confided them to Don Alessonati. One day, the latter met Don Cagliaro and said, you must make yourself better and better because Don Bosco told me a lot about you. Sure enough, Don Cagliaro later became a bishop, then cardinal, and pledged to forever preach devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear a story about St. Joseph Cafaso, please click on the link I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. In this episode, we'll discuss how St. John Bosco mysteriously saw all that was going on at the oratory, even when he wasn't there. Not only that, but the students could actually feel his punishments, even though he was miles away. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. At the beginning of July, Don Bosco said a boy in the house would die that month. On Friday, July 18th, Casaleño Bernardo of Chieti died at home while Don Bosco was at St. Ignatius. He was only 18 years old. On the following Friday, Don Bosco told the boys in his house at St. Ignatius that he had been at the bedside of Casaleño Bernardo and had assisted him in his last moments. But in turn, no one yet knew about the death. Don Bosco had already written to Don Alsonati about Casaleño's death, asking prayers for the boy. When Don Bosco arrived at the oratory, Don Bonetti questioned those with him at the exercises. He learned that Don Bosco had announced the boy's death shortly after it had happened, but he could not have known that because the two places were more than 21 miles apart. The young man's father, Chevalier Giuseppe Casaleño, confirmed that Don Bosco, despite being far away, publicly announced the death of his son at the very moment he passed away. No less surprising is the following account. Some young artisans named David, Tinelli, and Panico knew that Don Bosco wasn't at the oratory. 
They thought they could escape the sacred evening services and not be missed on Sunday, July 20th. Then, sneaking out, they swam in the canal near the Dora. Despite the vigilance of Don Alsonati and the assistants, no one noticed them missing. Undetected that day and the next, the culprits felt safe. But they had been observed from afar by Don Bosco, miraculously, who sent a letter to all his boys on Monday the 21st. In this letter, among other things, he mentioned the incident without naming the culprits. He writes, Dearest sons, I know you want to hear news from me, and I had to leave without saying goodbye, so I feel the need to speak to you. I will speak frankly as a father to his beloved children. I was a little under the weather on the evening of July 15th, so I traveled to St. Ignatius via coach. Along the journey to Caselli, I could enjoy the sun, which gave me a free steam bath because I was seated on top of the coach. But on the road from Caselli to St. Morris, the weather was cold and stormy with thunder, lightning, and rain. During the journey from St. Morris to Kiri, the rain mixed with a bit of hail. But from Kiri to Lanzo, which is a span of five miles, we encountered a downpour, hail, thunder, and a very cold wind that almost prevented us from breathing. My dear boys, you should have seen Don Bosco coming down from the carriage, drenched like one of those big rats you often see coming out of the ditch behind the courtyard. When I arrived, the parish priest, Don Frederick Albert, kindly gave me all I needed. Not having a cassock my size, he dressed me in a frock that made me look like an abbot. Having dried off and then refreshed with soup, I went to bed, but I was fatigued by the journey and a headache, so I couldn't sleep, even though I had a good bed and was well covered. In the morning, at seven, I arose and hired a donkey to continue on my way. After a steep three-mile climb, I finally arrived at St. Ignatius. I was very ill on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday after the journey, then Wednesday evening I rested a little. By Saturday I was much better, and the Blessed Virgin helped me so much that I returned to my old self on Sunday. Up to now in this letter, I've spoken of myself. Now it's good for me to talk about you. Let us begin with Bernardo Casaleño, our beloved companion. After much suffering, he died on Friday, July 18th, having received the Holy Sacraments in a truly exemplary manner without letting himself be frightened by death. He was full of confidence in the protection of the Blessed Virgin Mary. He had been preparing for this step for a long time. His preparation for heaven gives us hope that he visited Dominic Savio in heaven. He was buried in Chieri, where people prayed for him, and you did the same for him in the oratory. From the first day of this month, I directed all the good that we did in the house for the need of our companion, whom the Lord wanted to call to himself. May God help us also to have a good death. I have visited the oratory several times and found a little good and a little bad. I saw four wolves running here and there among the boys, and some of them were bitten. Perhaps these rapacious wolves will no longer be found in the oratory. But if they're still there, I want to tear from them the lambskin in which they clothe themselves. On another visit, I saw some chatting on the terrace during the evening prayer. Others were playing on the small staircase of the new house. Pravada saw some on the ground floor, but didn't see those on the floors upstairs. 
I also saw some go out on Sunday mornings and miss part of the church services. I was outraged that some boys fled to swim when it was time for evening services. Poor young men, how little they think of their souls. I also saw many young men with snakes twisted around their bodies and biting into their throats. Some of them wept, saying, we have sinned. Others laughed and sang, we have sinned, yet what has befallen us? But their throats swelled and they had trouble breathing. So today I see the devil turning idleness into carnage. I will soon be with you. I will unite with Don Alessonati and all the other priests and clerics to drive out the wolves, snakes, and idleness from our house. And then I will tell you everything. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us always, and may the Blessed Virgin preserve us. Amen. Yours affectionately in the Lord, Don Bosco. On Friday, July 25th, Don Bosco arrived at the oratory. After evening prayers, he went to the pulpit. He said that while he was away at St. Ignatius, he had seen the three boys leaving the oratory and missing services to go swimming. Seeing that all of the boys were utterly amazed, he continued, smiling, Perhaps some of you will ask, how did Don Bosco know such things? I knew it through my personal telegraph machine of sorts. I can establish communication, and I see and know everything that benefits the honor and glory of God and the health of souls. I will now tell you things that I probably shouldn't, but I think it's a good idea for me to tell you so that no one thinks he can get away with things when I'm away from the oratory. Anyone who thinks he hasn't been seen is deceiving himself. And it would be best if you didn't abstain from evil only for fear of being discovered by Don Bosco. Instead, I want you to avoid sin because you're seen by God, who will demand a rigorous account of your deeds on the day of judgment. I will tell you briefly that, from St. Ignatius, I have seen the chief enemy of every one of you. I will try to speak to each of you in private and give you the necessary advice to help you. I have so much love for your souls that I wouldn't stop talking because I want to tell you so many beautiful things that can benefit your spiritual well-being. Signor Cavalleri Oriella still wanted Don Bosco to tell him whether his telegraph wire allowed him to do other things from afar besides just seeing. Don Bosco laughed and answered, Oh, maybe those fellows felt a little punishment through my telegraph line. This punishment, whether it was really through my mysterious telegraph wire or by something else, was really felt by those three. While they were in the water, they felt a lashing on their skin, which made them recoil. They quickly asked a soldier swimming in the vicinity what had struck them and why. When Don Bosco finished speaking, one of the boys, young Tinelli, turned to a nearby friend whom he had already told of his escape in secret. He exclaimed in a low voice, Now I understand those blows on my shoulders that were so strong and painful. And I argued with a soldier who swam nearby, suspecting that it was him. Bonetti stood behind him, and upon hearing these words, took Tinelli by the hand and led him to Don Alessonati. Tinelli candidly told the story and disclosed the names of his two friends. All three of them confirmed Don Bosco's account. They confessed that they had received those mysterious blows and immediately came out of the water but didn't see anyone. 
They were so frightened that they immediately put on their clothes and returned to the oratory. Then, after a few days, Tonelli unfortunately left the oratory while the students took final exams. I think it's clear from this story that St. John Bosco could bilocate, and I give thanks to God for the privilege of honoring such a great saint on this channel. Thank you so much for watching, and if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, please click on the link I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. St. John Bosco had hundreds of mysterious visions sent from God in the form of dreams. These mystical experiences were parables that he was meant to tell to his oratory boys to help them make it to heaven. But I think the whole world should hear St. John Bosco's dreams because they're incredibly beneficial for your spiritual life. So join us for our three-part series on St. John Bosco's dream, The Life-Saving Raft. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. On Monday evening, on the first day of 1866, Don Bosco narrated the following dream. It seemed that I was not far from a town that looked like Castelnuovo di Asti, but it wasn't. The boys of the oratory were merrily playing in an immense plain. Suddenly, water encroached upon the edges of that plain, and we realized we were surrounded by a flood which advanced towards us. The swollen Po River had overflowed, and with immense destructive torrents, it was coming right for us. Overcome with terror, we ran for a large isolated mill which had walls as thick as those of a fortress. We and our dear dismayed boys stopped in the courtyard of the mill. But as the waters began to seep into that area too, we were all forced to retreat into the house and move into the upper rooms. From the windows, we could see the extent of the disaster. From the Superga Hills to the Alps, where we could usually make out meadows, cultivated fields, and woods, and farmsteads, we could no longer see anything but an immense lake. As the water rose, we climbed from one floor to the next till we reached the highest floor. By the time we got to the top, we lost all human hope of saving ourselves. I encouraged all my boys to confidently commend themselves into the hands of God and the arms of our Blessed Mother Mary. But the water had already almost reached the top floor of the mill. Then our fright was universal. We saw no other means of escape until a very large raft in the form of a ship floated near us out of nowhere. Everyone was breathless and wanted to be the first to take refuge in the raft but no one dared because it couldn't come close enough to the house, being prevented by a wall a little taller than the water level. So we had to walk on a long, narrow tree trunk to board the raft. But this task was difficult because one end of the trunk rested on the raft that rose and fell with the rolling waves. Getting up my courage, I crossed over first. To help the young men move calmly from the mill to the raft, I assigned some clerics in the mill to help the boys leave it, and I had other clerics on the raft side who could help those arriving. After a while, the priests found themselves so tired that they were falling down with exhaustion. To my surprise, I saw that those who stepped in to relieve them met the same fate. 
Amazed, I too wanted to put myself to the test to see what was happening, and soon I felt so exhausted that I could no longer stand either. Meanwhile, many eager young men, either fearing death or wanting to show off their courage, found a wooden plank long enough and a little wider than the tree trunk, and with that they made a second bridge to the raft. Then, without waiting for the help from the clerics and priests, they rushed across it, not heeding me when I cried out to them to wait. Cease, cease, or else you will fall, I shouted, but many lost their balance before they reached the boat. They fell and were swallowed by those murky and putrid waters, never to be seen again. Even their fragile plank sank with those on it. A quarter of our young men fell victim to this attempt. Once I realized that the flood had risen above the dividing wall, I was able to push the raft closer to the mill. At this point, Don Caliero stood with one foot on the mill's window ledge and the other on the raft's edge. He offered a hand to help the remaining young men safely jump into the raft. Even so, not all the young men were saved. A number had ascended to the mill's attics and from there to its roof. There they clustered tightly on the ridge while the flood, which had continued to rise without stopping, was already covering the eaves of the roof. But with the water had also risen the raft. So I shouted to the group, recommending that they pray heartily, be quiet, and go down the roof to the raft together, gripping one another's arms so they wouldn't slip. They obeyed, and as the side of the raft reached the eaves, this group also made it aboard aided by their companions. Once on the raft, we found baskets holding many loaves of bread. When all were safely in the boat, we were still uncertain of escaping that danger. I took command as captain and said to the young men, Mary is the star of the sea. She doesn't abandon those who trust in her. Let us all place ourselves under her mantle. She'll rescue us from perils and guide us to a calm harbor. So we allowed the waves to control the raft, which floated excellently and moved away from that place. Propelled by the wind, the rushing waves pushed the raft with such speed that we clutched one another so as not to fall. Having quickly covered a great deal of distance, the boat suddenly stopped and spun round and round with extraordinary speed so that it seemed as if it would sink. But a violent gust of wind pushed it out of this whirlpool. The raft then resumed a more regular course. Meeting occasional currents and the saving breath of wind, it finally stopped near a dry, beautiful, vast bank that seemed to rise like a hill in the middle of that sea. Many young men became enamored when the raft encountered this shore. Saying that the Lord had wisely placed man on land and not on the water, they joyfully exited the boat without asking permission, invited others to follow them, and ascended that bank. Their contentment was brief. The floodwaters invaded the shores of that beautiful bank as well. Those unfortunate ones found themselves up to their waists in the water in a short time. They were quickly engulfed by the waves and disappeared. I exclaimed, it is indeed true that if a man empties his purse into his head, no one can take it away from him. An investment in knowledge always pays the best interest. Meanwhile, the raft was again at the whirlpool's mercy and threatening to sink. I saw my boys pale and panting. Take courage, I cried to them. Mary will not abandon us. Together we recited the acts of faith, hope, 
charity and contrition, as well as a few Our Fathers, Hail Marys, and the Salva Regina. Then, kneeling and holding hands, we each recited particular prayers. However, several fools were indifferent to the danger, as if nothing had happened. They stood up and moved around, snickering among themselves and mocking their companions' pleas and prayers. The raft came to a sudden halt and spun rapidly, and a furious wind whipped those wretches into the waves. There were thirty of them, and nothing more was seen because the water was so deep and muddy. We sang the Salva Regina, and more than ever, we heartily invoked the protection of the Star of the Sea. After that last episode, calm ensued. But like a big fish, the raft kept moving on without us knowing where it would lead us. On board, we were engaged in a continual rescue effort, doing everything possible to prevent the young men from falling into the waters and to save those who did fall overboard. Some leaned carelessly over the raft's edge and fell into the water. Some boys were shameless and cruel and called others to join them near the raft's edge where a wave would jostle the raft and throw them overboard. Therefore, the priests prepared strong rods, large lines, and hooks of various kinds to retrieve those that went overboard. Some of the clerics attached the hooks to the rods and distributed them. Others stood in their assigned places with their rods raised, their eyes fixed on the waves, and their ears attentive to any cry for help. When a young man fell, the rods were lowered and the castaway grabbed the line, or else he was hooked by his belt or clothes and was thus rescued. The clerics then watched all around the raft's sides to keep the significant number of boys back from the edge. This, of course, is all a parable that Don Bosco will explain in our later episodes, so please join me on Wednesday for part two of the dream. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Welcome to part two of St. John Bosco's dream, The Life-Saving Raft. And if you haven't seen part one yet, I'd recommend clicking on the link I've put in the description below. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco continued telling his dream to the oratory boys. He said, I stood at the foot of a tall mast at the center of the raft, surrounded by many boys, priests, and clerics who carried out my orders. As long as they were docile and obedient to my words, all was well and we were quiet, content, and secure. But quite a few began to find the raft uncomfortable, and they feared the voyage was too long. They complained about the dangers, discomforts, inconveniences, and argued about where we would land. They wondered how we would find another refuge and deluded themselves with the hope that not far away we would land and find safe shelter. Still others worried that they would soon run out of provisions. In short, they began to question everything and refused to obey. I tried to persuade them with various reasons, but my efforts were in vain. Other rafts appeared that seemed to be following a different course from ours. The imprudent boys resolved to turn away from me and have their way. They threw some planks they found in our raft into the waters. Upon discovering more fairly wide planks floating nearby, they jumped on them and departed for the other rafts that had appeared. 
That scene was indescribably painful for me to see those unfortunate boys heading for their ruin. The wind was blowing and the waves were agitated. Behold, some of the boys sank beneath the waves, rising and falling furiously. Others were enveloped in the whirlpools and dragged into the abyss. Others bumped into obstacles at the water's edge, where they capsized and disappeared. Several managed to reach the other rafts, but those sank before long. The night grew dark and gloomy, and in the distance we heard the heart-rending cries of those who ultimately perished. Because all were shipwrecked, I thought of these words. In the sea of this world, all shall perish who are not aboard this ship, our lady's ship, that is, the ship of Mary Most Holy. The number of my dear children was significantly reduced. Nevertheless, we continued to trust in Our Lady. After the dark night, the ship finally entered a very narrow strait between two muddy shores covered with bush, large rocks, pebbles, poles, firewood, broken planks, masts, and oars. We could see tarantulas, toads, snakes, dragons, crocodiles, sharks, vipers, and a thousand other filthy animals around the boat. Above were weeping willows, the branches of which hung over our boat. Above the willows stood large cats, chewing pieces from human limbs. Many ape-like creatures hung from the branches and tried to touch and snatch the boys, but the boys squatted low and dodged those snares. Here we saw with horror the poor companions who had been lost or deserted us, after their shipwrecks, the waves had thrown them upon that beach. Some limbs had been torn to pieces by the most violent impact against the rocks. Others were buried in the marsh, where only their hair and half an arm could be seen, and someone's back protruded from the mud farther on. Elsewhere, some corpses floated entirely visible. Suddenly, a young man from the boat cried out, here is a monster devouring the flesh of so-and-so. He repeatedly called that wretch by his name, pointing him out to his bewildered companions. Another spectacle presented itself to our eyes. A short distance away rose a gigantic furnace in which a great fire was blazing. Human forms appeared among the flames. We could see feet, legs, arms, hands, and heads, now rising and then descending in those flames in the same chaotic manner as a pot of stew when it boils. Observing this ghastly sight, we saw many of our pupils and were startled. Above that fire was a great lid on which were written these words in large letters, the Sixth and Seventh Commandments. Nearby, we saw a vast, tall outcrop of land with numerous haphazardly growing trees. Many of our young men were still moving, having either fallen into the waves or strayed on purpose during our voyage. I went ashore, paying no heed to the danger. I approached and saw that they had their eyes, ears, hair, and even their hearts filled with insects and filthy worms, which were gnawing at them, causing them great pain. One of the young men suffered more than the others. I wanted to approach him, but he fled from me by hiding behind the trees. I saw others who opened their shirts and showed their bodies were wrapped with snakes. Others had vipers on their chests. 
I pointed them all to a spring from which fresh, abundant mineral water poured. Whoever went to wash in it was healed instantly and was able to return to the boat. Most of those unfortunate ones obeyed my invitation, but some refused. I ended my appeal to them and turned to those who had been healed. Then they followed me confidently at my urging, and the monsters all withdrew. Then, as soon as we reboarded the raft, we were propelled by the wind, and it exited that strait and soared into a boundless ocean. Mourning the sad fate of our companions, we began to sing the hymn, Praise Mary, O Faithful Tongues, and thanksgiving to the great Heavenly Mother for having protected us until that moment. As though by Our Lady's command, the raging of the wind miraculously ceased, and the ship began to glide swiftly over the calm waves with an ease I can't describe. The raft seemed to move forward at the mere encouragement that the young men jokingly gave it by pushing back the water with the palms of their hands. A rainbow appeared in the sky, more marvelous and varied than the aurora borealis. Passing by, we read the word meduum, written in large letters of light, but we didn't understand its meaning. It seemed to me that each letter was the initial of these words, Mater et Domina Omnis Universi Maria, that is, Mary, Mother and Mistress of the Whole Universe. After a long stretch of the journey, land appeared. Little by little, as we approached, we felt an inexpressible joy in our hearts. With its groves of trees, that land presented the most enchanting panorama one could imagine after that terrifying journey. It was illuminated as if the light of the rising sun shone behind its hills. It was a light like that of a beautiful summer evening. It instilled in us a sense of rest and peace. Finally, the raft bumped against the sands of the shore. Then the raft halted at the foot of a beautiful vineyard. We could say this about that raft, O oh God, you gave us a bridge to enable us to cross the ground swells of this world and reach your safe harbor. The young men were eager to enter into that vineyard. Some who were more curious than others leaped onto that shore, but after just a few steps, they remembered the unfortunate fate that befell those first ones who fell in love with the previous land that emerged in the middle of the stormy sea. So they hastily returned to the boat Everyone's eyes turned to me. The wrinkled forehead of each asked the question, Don Bosco, is it time to descend and stop? I thought for a while and then said to them, Let us descend. The time has come. Now we're safe. There was a general shout of joy. Each one wrung his hands in contentment and entered the vineyard. From the vines hung clusters of grapes like those found in the promised land and on the trees grew every kind of fruit that one can desire. A great castle surrounded by a delightful regal garden and strong walls sat in the middle of that vast vineyard. We went to visit it and were granted entry. We were tired and hungry. In a large hall in the castle, all decorated with gold, a great table was set for us with the most exquisite foods to which everyone could help himself as he pleased. As we finished our refreshments, a noble servant entered the hall who was richly dressed of indescribable beauty. He greeted us with affectionate and familiar courtesy 
calling us all by name. Seeing us astonished and amazed at his beauty and the magnificence of everything we had already seen, he said, This is nothing. Come and see. We followed him. He showed us the gardens from the balconies, explaining that those were for our recreation. He led us from hall to hall, each more magnificent than the previous in its architecture, with colonnades and ornaments of every kind. He then opened a door leading into a chapel and invited us to enter. From the outside, the chapel looked small, but as soon as we crossed its threshold, we saw it was so large that we could barely see one another from one end to the other. The floor, the walls, and the vaults were rich with admirable decorations of marble, silver, gold, and precious stones. I was so ecstatic with wonder that I exclaimed, but this is the beauty of paradise. I could remain here forever. So what did this dream mean? Please join us on Friday for part three of the dream where all of this will be explained. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. This is the conclusion of our three-part series on St. John Bosco's dream, The Life-Saving Raft. And if you'd like to see the other parts of the dream, I recommend clicking on the link I've put in the description below. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco narrated the final part of his dream thusly. He said, In the center of that great chapel in the castle stood a magnificent statue of Mary Help of Christians. I called all the boys who had scattered here and there to examine the beauty of that sacred statue. The whole multitude went before it to thank the Heavenly Virgin for the many favors she showed us. Here I noticed the immensity of that church, for all those thousands of boys seemed like a small group occupying the center of the chapel. While the boys gazed at that statue, it suddenly seemed to come alive and smile. Our Lady moved her eyes, exclaimed some. And indeed, Blessed Mary turned her maternal eyes with overwhelming goodness upon those young men. Shortly afterward, they gave a second shout. Our Lady moved her hands. Indeed, slowly opening her arms, she raised her mantle as if to welcome us all under it. Tears flowed down our cheeks. Our Lady moved her lips, said some. There was a deep silence at first. Then Our Lady opened her mouth and, in a silvery, smooth voice, spoke to us. If you will be loving children to me, I will be your loving mother. At these words, we all fell to our knees and intoned the hymn, Praise Mary, O faithful tongues. Our harmony was so solid and polished that I was overwhelmed by it. I awoke, and thus ended my vision. Do you see, my dear children, in this dream, we can recognize the stormy sea of this world. Suppose you will be docile, obedient to my words, and not listen to evil counselors. In that case, if we spend our lives trying to do good and avoid evil, if we have overcome all our bad tendencies, we will finally arrive at a safe shore at the end of our lives. Then a messenger will come to meet us, sent by our Blessed Lady. In the name of our good God, to refresh us from our labors, the messenger will introduce us into the royal garden, paradise. 
It is God's most loving, divine presence. But if you do the opposite of what I preach to you, you will end up in a tragic shipwreck if you decide to follow your way and ignore my advice. Later, in private, Don Bosco gave a more specific explanation of this dream concerning not only the oratory, but also the Salesians. The plains are the world. The water threatening to drown us in the dream represents the world's dangers. The vast flood signifies vices, unholy sayings, and persecution against all that is good. The mill represented an isolated and quiet place, but one that was nonetheless threatened, and the house of bread was the Catholic Church. The baskets of bread were the Holy Eucharist, serving as viaticum for sailors. The raft represented the oratory. The tree trunk that formed a bridge from the mill to the raft was the cross, that is, the sacrifice of oneself to God with Christian mortification. But the plank that the young people tried to add as a more accessible bridge to enter the boat represented the transgression of the rules. Many go through life with selfish motives, a career, profit, honors, comfort, and changing one's condition and status. These, then, are the ones who do not pray and who mock the piety of others. The priests and clerics symbolized obedience and pointed to the signs of salvation possible because of obedience. The whirlpools are the various and tremendous persecutions that arose and will yet arise. The disobedient ones, who did not want to be on the raft and so set foot on the island that soon flooded, are those who re-enter the world from the oratory while scorning their calling. Then some sought refuge in other rafts. Many who fell into the water reached out their hands to those on our raft and they got back on with the help of their companions. They were those of goodwill who, having fallen wretchedly into sin, put themselves back into God's grace through penance. The strait with the cats, monkeys, and other monsters represents the revolutions, occasions, and enticements to sin. Bugs in the eyes, on the tongue, and in the heart symbolize evil looks, obscene speech, and disordered feelings. The spring of purifying water which made all insects die and healed anyone instantly refers to the sacraments of confession and holy communion. The swamp and fire, however, are places of sin and damnation. This dream doesn't mean that all those who fell into the sludge and disappeared and all those who burned in the flames should be lost in hell. God forbid! But it does mean that those in mortal sin would have been eternally lost if they had died. The Happy Island is the Salesian Society, established and triumphant, and the splendid messenger who welcomes the young people and leads them to the castle and the temple seems to be a deceased pupil now in heaven, perhaps Dominic Savio. From Don Bosco's last sentence, we can see that this dream, like his other dreams, has a general meaning that refers mainly to the Salesian society. On the morning of January 2nd, the young men were eager to know the state of their conscience. Hence, they ran to confess to Don Bosco in the sacristy. Then, after confession, one asked him how and where he had seen him in that mysterious dream. Don Bosco replied, You were on the raft, fishing, and fell into the water several times. 
but I pulled you out and put you back on board. Did you see me in the chapel? The boy asked. Oh, yes, yes, Don Bosco replied. To a cleric from Vercelli in the courtyard who asked about himself, Don Bosco said, you were reprimanding others and thus prevented them from fishing. Don Bosco was asked by a priest about his part in that scene. Don Bosco said, I saw you segregated from the others, solitary, serious, in the corner of the ship, busy preparing hooks with the lines which the others then took to fish. The pupils never forgot this dream, and it made a great impression on them. The young Agostino Samaria wrote, I also remember that on one of the following evenings, curiously, Don Bosco gathered us on the patio and had us recite a third of the rosary for the needs of Holy Mother Church. When the prayer was over, he was welcomed with great festivity and cheers as he went among us, allowing us to lift him to the podium where he usually spoke. Letting the applause die down, he mentioned the joy the righteous would feel when they land on the shores of eternal happiness. He described the peace that a Christian enjoys by always living in God's grace. Wishing us a good night, he said, when you undress to go to bed, do so with all modesty, remembering that God sees you. Then lie down and cross your hands on your chest, abandoning yourselves and the heart of Jesus and Mary, take your rest. Thank you all so much for watching and sticking with us through this three-part series and if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass Intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, please click on the link I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. If you recall last week's video on St. John Bosco's dream, The Life-Saving Raft, you'll remember that he encountered St. Dominic Savio on a heavenly island. But who was St. Dominic Savio? In this video, we'll discuss how Don Bosco met Dominic Savio and how he came to the oratory. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Nearing the end of September, 1854, Don Bosco led a number of his youngsters to Becky to relax in the pure air of those hills once the cholera epidemic had passed. Then, almost as a reward for what the oratory had done for the sick, our Lord sent him a pupil to succeed him in luster and glory, Dominic Savio. Don Joseph Culiero, the boy's teacher in Mondonio, a small village bordering Castelnuovo, had come to Turin around mid-year to speak to Don Bosco about Dominic. After describing the boy's exemplary conduct, the teacher concluded, here you may have young men who are equal to him, but hardly anyone will surpass him in talent and virtue. Test him, and you'll find a Saint Aloysius. Don Bosco agreed and decided to meet Dominic in Morialdo. The occasion was the novena and celebration of the rosary. Don Bosco narrated his meeting with young Dominic Savio in his own words. He said, it was the first Monday, early on the second day of October, when I saw a young boy approaching to speak to me, accompanied by his father. His cheerful face and respectful manner drew my attention. Who are you? I asked him. Where are you from? I'm Dominic Savio, the boy replied. Don Culiero, my teacher, told you about me and we're from London. I called him aside and asked about his studies and home life. We understood each other very quickly. I perceived a mind entirely conforming to the spirit of the Lord in that young man. 
I was not a little astonished to witness the work of divine grace already forming the boy at such a young age. After talking for some time, Dominic asked me before I called his father over, What do you think, father? Will you take me to Turin to the institute? You look like good material to me, I answered. Good material, father? Good for what? he asked. To make a vestment for our Lord, I said. Ah, so I'm the cloth. Then you must be the tailor, the boy said. Please take me with you and make a beautiful vestment for the Lord. I fear your frailty will not hold up for study, I said. Fear not, the boy replied. The Lord who has given me sanity and grace so far will also help me in the future. When you finish studying Latin, what would you like to do? I asked him. If the Lord will grant me such a grace, I long to embrace the clerical state, the boy said. Good, good, I replied. Now I want to see if you have sufficient capacity for study. Take this booklet of Catholic readings and study this page. Then tomorrow, return and recite it to me. Having said this, I left him at liberty to amuse himself with other young men, and then I talked to his father. Not more than eight minutes had passed when Dominic came forward laughing and said to me, If you want, I'll recite my page now. I took the book back, and to my surprise, he had not only memorized the assigned page, but also understood the meaning. Bravo, I said to him. You have anticipated my wishes, so I'll anticipate the answer. Yes, I'll take you to Turin. As of now, you're one of my dear oratory boys. Pray to God that he will help you and me to do his holy will. Not knowing how to express his contentment and gratitude, Dominic took my hand, shook it, kissed it several times, and then finally said, I hope to conduct myself in such a way that you will never have to complain about my behavior. Toward the end of October, the beginning of the school year was now approaching, and the newly accepted young men were entering the oratory. Among the first was Dominic Savio, who went to Don Bosco's room to give himself wholly into the hands of his superiors. His gaze fell upon a wall hanging with the words that St. Francis de Sales used to repeat, Da Miki Animas, Catara Tolle. The boy read it carefully, and Don Bosco asked him to translate it and explain the meaning. O Lord, give me souls and take all other things from me. Dominic thought for a moment and then added, I understand. Here you're not a money store, but a soul store. Well, I hope my soul will also be part of this business. Without fail, he began to apply himself earnestly to study and all the duties of piety. He also wrote splendid essays on virtue that Don Bosco so well described later in a collection of Catholic readings. Dominic Savio had studied the principles of Latin at Mondonio. With diligent study and extraordinary ability, he was promoted to the second year of Latin. He took this course under the pious and charitable professor Giuseppe Bonzanino, who allowed several boys of the oratory to attend his private school. It is true that Dominic appeared somewhat weak and puny, but his blend of seriousness combined with a kind disposition gave the man a truly angelic air. Before long, he won the hearts and esteem of all his companions. His motto was, death rather than sin. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you enjoyed this video, why not subscribe and click on the playlist I put on the screen to watch more of these videos. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you.
Can you imagine hearing a talk from a saint in person that's specifically designed for your spiritual needs? That's what St. John Bosco would do for his oratory boys. And in this episode, I'm going to narrate four good night talks that he gave. They talk about parables, apparitions from Our Lady, and even visions sent to him from God. And his manner of speaking shows that when it came to promoting virtue, Don Bosco never pulled any punches. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco knew all his boys by name and had a deep affection for the health of their souls. Once, when he learned that one boy had committed a serious error, he was so grieved that he couldn't sleep. The following evening, he shared his concern from the pulpit, complained of the offense to God and how much he was saddened by it. This holy concern suggested to him the idea of the good night messages from the end of April into the beginning of May. April 29th Don Bosco mounted the pulpit and began, Imagine a hen that doesn't want to enter the chicken coop one evening. In vain, the housewife struggles to get the hen in, but it keeps running away. So she gives up, closes the chicken coop, and goes into the house. The hen walks around, pecks a few grains on the ground, and is happy to be free, but then a noise disturbs her. At night, no one inside the house keeps watch, and the dogs roam far away in the forest. She turns to see a fox advancing to devour her. The frightened hen leaps into the air as the fox tries to catch her, but falls into the farmyard. Then the hen manages to fly into the branches of a nearby tree, but the fox doesn't lose sight of its prey. He crouches on the ground and watches, and after an hour, the hen takes a second flight and lands on the wall surrounding the farmyard. But the wall was even lower than her original tree branch. Meanwhile, the fox climbs a wooden plank leaning against the wall and runs along the top toward the hen. She has no other option but to make a third flight onto a tree outside the wall, landing on a branch that is the lowest refuge so far, but the fox pokes his head through the branches with eyes of fire. So the hen takes one last flight, landing on the ground with nowhere else to take shelter. She cries out, but in a short while, nothing remains except a heap of bloody feathers. My children, the fox is the devil. The hen represents certain young men who may be good, but trust too much in their own strength. They don't want rules, as the hen doesn't want to be locked safely in the hen house. The inexperienced boys neglect warnings because they have wings, goodwill, and prayer, but they don't realize that our weak nature drags us down. Some are gluttonous, some are lazy, and others say, why are we forbidden from certain friendships? We do nothing wrong. Then one begins to neglect the rules, or another tries to escape his superiors. And then another has certain thoughts of familiarity, special friendships, and even sensitivities. Like the hen, you go down because your wings are not enough. The fox is running below you, and you end up falling into its jaws. Good night. April 30th. I have a sobering thought on my mind that I would like to share with you. Visit some craftsmen and ask them, why are you in these workshops? They'll answer, to learn a trade, to become good shoemakers, carpenters, or whatever profession. So I ask, why did you leave your homes? 
Why did you even come to the oratory? You'll tell me, to study, be instructed, and become men. But consider how much one does to learn a trade or to advance in the sciences. Now I'll ask you, why are we in this world? You'll answer, we have come to this world to know, love, and serve God, and to be happy with Him in heaven. That is, to save your souls. I've had this thought on my mind for some time, and today it was fixed in my heart. If all of you had this great truth in your minds, and you worked solely to save your souls, then you would need no more regulations, warnings, or exercises for a happy death, because you would have all that you need for your happiness if you determined your actions with such an important purpose in mind. And it would be everything I desire, and the oratory would be a true earthly paradise. There would be no more theft, bad talk, dangerous reading, murmuring, or disobedience. Everyone would do their duty as they should. Priests and clerics, students and artisans, the poor and the rich, must work to achieve this end. Otherwise, all will struggle in vain. Yet, some here do not think about this in the least. The goal of these young men is to party with a few companions and a few bottles of wine. They run to find their friends, and they all slip away to enjoy some earthly pleasure. So why don't they act as diligently for their soul? Why don't they look for someone to persuade him to do good, like visiting Jesus Christ in the Blessed Sacrament? I remember the spiritual exercises preached by Don Cafasso. He thoroughly examined the immense value people give to temporal things and their neglect for their souls. He did it so much so that no one could even eat that evening. He made such an impression on us by examining that terrible truth. My dear children, let's think seriously about this essential truth of such great importance and be wise by making good use of God's grace to save our souls. Otherwise, a day will come when we will mourn our foolishness. May 1st I dreamed that I was in church filled with young people, but few were approaching to receive Holy Communion. Near the altar was a tall, dark man with two horns on his head. He held a magic lantern that projected different pictures to different young people. To one, he showed the playground filled with games and enticed him to his favorite amusement. To another, he showed the past, his losses, and his hope for future victories. He showed another his native country with his favorite foods, amusements, fields, and his house. To yet another, he projected the fruits, sweets, and the wine he had stashed in his locker to eat later. And to others, he showed relatives, friends, or even worse, their sins, and even unpaid debts. Sadly, few approached the sacraments as they reflected upon the vacations and good times and contemplated their favorite pastimes. Do you know what this dream means? It means that the devil is doing everything to distract the young people in the church to draw them away from the holy sacraments, and that they're so foolish that they entertain the ideas he sends. So, my children, you must break this lantern of the devil. And do you know how to do it? Look at the cross and imagine that turning away from Holy Communion is the same as throwing yourself into the devil's arms. May 5th 
In this talk, it's clear that St. John Bosco was trying to inspire the boys by telling them about an amazing apparition of Our Lady. He said, Tonight I will tell you about the apparition of Our Lady of Mount Bonica near Campofredo in 1595, narrated by Carlo Pecorini in his historical notes describing the most famous apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary. From this account, you will understand how Our Lady wants her children to feel brotherly love for one another, not grudges, jealousies, fights, or other concerns. Campofredo and Massoni were large hamlets in the Diocese of Acqui in Piedmont. They often fought battles with each other over deep enmities and mutual violations of rights that led to massacres. They mourned the good ones who died with the virtuous Don Gregorio Spinola, pastor of Campofredo, and pleaded for help from the Queen of Peace, the great peacemaker, and she heard their prayer and granted their request. On September 10, 1595, Don Spinola was inspired by Our Lady, gathered the villagers, and led them to Massoni, carrying a crucifix, to plead for peace with those proud mountain people. The two villages met with the Augustinians from both villages. They had reached an agreement and almost made peace when suddenly a shout was heard. Look, look, cried Thomas Oliver. Look at Mount Bonica. It looks like paradise. They looked at the hill dividing the two villages and saw it reflected a white cloud. Soon the cloud revealed the likeness of a most splendid lady who was courted by two virgins, wearing a celestial mantle and white veil on her head. She was so radiant with light that everyone was dazzled, and after a few moments she disappeared. A great miracle, they cried out, making resolutions to live better lives and demonstrating mutual brotherhood. Most pitiful Mary has come to bring peace, they cried. Peace, O oh brothers, peace forever. The promise was repeated and the vision appeared once again. The lady showed herself in the company of the two saints. The fortunate villagers were astonished by the vision and the precious fruits it bore. A lasting peace began between the two villages and that peace has never failed. The virgin heaped favor upon favor on the villagers. The sick found health by invoking the miraculous Madonna of Mount Bonica. So hopefully that gave you some idea of how St. John Bosco conducted his good night talks. And if you'd like to hear more about his visions that he told the oratory boys, you can subscribe to this channel for future videos, or you can click on the playlist I put on the screen, or both. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. On January 5th, 1870, Don Bosco had a dream that contained a prophecy that's probably the most incredible event in his life. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco was an advocate for papal infallibility, so he resolved to go to Rome in support of this dogma. His heart and mind were with the First Vatican Council. Papal infallibility in matters of faith and morals, when he teaches ex cathedra, was teaching as ancient and universal as the church itself. The entreaties of many bishops and the desire of Christendom demanded that the council define this truth as a dogma. Don Bosco had always held this prerogative of the Roman pontiff in singular esteem. He rejoiced in these manifestations of faith 
as he became more and more persuaded of the need to define this dogma. But the unbelievers and the Freemasons were consumed by exasperation and uneasiness. Seeing that the church remained so full of life despite so many persecutions, these forces convened in an anti-Catholic council in Naples in the name of free thought. They aimed to wage an all-out war against the Pope and the papacy. In Bologna, Giusuè Carducci printed a hymn to Satan as the whole Protestant, schismatic, sectarian, and Masonic world boiled with anti-Christian passions. Those in the Masonic lodges used every possible means to sow discord between the church hierarchy and Catholic societies, and their efforts partly succeeded. Don Bosco became aware of this and was most grieved when he learned that several bishops had declared themselves opposed to the pertinence of defining papal infallibility as dogma. For his part, Don Bosco joined other bishops, prelates, and theologians in warmly supporting this opportunity to define this dogma. They hinted that the definition would end the errors of Gallicanism, a widespread belief in France that sought to make the French church independent from Rome and subordinate to French civil authority, an egregious error of the Renaissance. They also hoped that reasserting papal infallibility would end Febronianism in Germany, where believers wanted to nationalize Catholicism by shifting power from the papacy to local bishops. Febronianism was a powerful movement within the Catholic Church in Germany in the latter part of the 18th century. It attempted to nationalize Catholicism and restrict the power of the papacy in favor of the episcopate. Don Bosco felt great relief when he learned that on December 25, 1869, the Archbishop of Malines proposed to define papal infallibility as a dogma. From that moment, the proposal became the essential theme of the Council. Then, on January 5, 1870, Don Bosco had a dream and wrote down what he saw and the voice of God he heard speaking. He wrote, God alone is almighty. He knows everything and sees everything. God has neither past nor future. To him, everything is present. He alone, in his infinite mercy and by his glory, can manifest future things to humanity. On the eve of the Epiphany of 1870, all the material objects in my room disappeared, and I found myself among supernatural things. It was a brief moment, although I was sensibly present, I had great difficulty communicating what I saw using external and sensible signs. I heard, from the south comes war, and from the north comes peace. The laws of France no longer recognize the Creator, and the Creator will make himself known and visit France three times with the wrath of his fury. On the first visit, he will strike down her pride with defeats, plundering, and slaughtering crops, animals, and people. On the second visit, the great harlot of Babylon, France, which good men sigh and call the brothel of Europe, shall be deprived of her head in disorder. Paris, Paris, instead of arming yourself with the name of the Lord, you surround yourself with houses of immorality. They shall be destroyed by yourself. Your idol, the Pantheon, shall be incinerated so that it may come to pass that iniquity has lied to itself. Your enemies shall put you in distress, hunger, fear, and the abomination of the nations. 
but woe to you if you do not recognize the hand that beats you. I want to punish immorality, abandonment, contempt of my law, says the Lord. On the third visit, you shall fall into foreign hands. From afar, your enemies shall see your palaces in flames. Your houses will become a heap of ruins, wet with the blood of your valiant ones who are no more. But behold, a great warrior from the north carried a banner in his right hand inscribed with these words, Irresistible is the hand of the Lord. At that instant, the venerable old man of Rome went to meet him, waving a fiery torch. Then the banner expanded and became white as snow. The name of He Who Can Do All Things was written in the middle of the banner in golden letters. The warrior bowed deeply to the old man, and they shook hands. Now the voice of heaven spoke to the shepherd of shepherds. You are in the great conference with your assessors, but the enemy of goodness does not stand still a moment. He studies and practices all arts against you. He shall sow discord among your assessors. He shall stir up enemies among my children. The powers of the age shall vomit fire, if only the words could choke the throats of the keepers of my law. This will not be. They will hurt themselves. You must hurry. If you do not overcome the difficulties, sever them. If you are distressed, do not stop, but continue until the head of the hydra of error is truncated. This blow will shake the earth and hell, but the world will be saved, and all who are good will rejoice. Gather around you, therefore, even two assessors, but wherever you go, continue and finish the work that was entrusted to you. The days run fast, your years advance to the appointed number, but the great queen will always be your help. As in times past, in the future, she will always be magnum et singular in ecclesia presidium, the powerful, prodigious defense of the church. The voice of heaven continued, but you, Italy, land of blessings, who has plunged you into desolation? Not your enemies, but your friends. Don't you hate that your children ask for the bread of faith and find none to break it for them? What shall I do? I will strike the shepherds and scatter the flock so that those sitting on the chair of Moses may seek good pastures while the flock meekly listens and feeds. But my hand will hover over the flock and the shepherds. Famine, plague, and war will cause mothers to mourn the blood of sons and husbands who have died in enemy lands. And for you, O Rome, what shall it be? Ungrateful Rome, effeminate Rome, haughty Rome. You have come to the point where you only seek and admire nothing but luxury in your independence, forgetting that your glory rests on Golgotha. Now the venerable old man of Rome is old, frail, and defenseless, yet his word makes the whole world tremble. The voice of heaven said, Rome, I will come four times to you. On the first visit, I will smite your lands and their inhabitants. On the second visit, I will bring slaughter and extermination to your walls. Have you not yet opened your eyes? On the third visit, I will break down the defenses and defenders. I will rain down terror, fright, and desolation at the Father's command. 
My wise men will flee, but my law will still be trampled so that I will make the fourth visitation. Woe to you if you still take my law in vain. There will be deceptions between the learned and the ignorant. Your blood and your children's blood shall wash away the stains you have caused to the law of your God. War, plague, and famine are the scourges with which the pride and malice of humanity shall be beaten. Where are your magnificent mansions and palaces? They have become the garbage of the squares and streets. But you, O priests, why do you not run and weep between the vestibule and the altar, praying for the end of the scourges? Why do you not take the shield of faith and go on the rooftops, into the houses, the streets, the squares, every place, even those inaccessible, to bring the seed of my word? Are you unaware that this terrible two-edged sword cuts down my enemies and breaks the wrath of God and man? These things must come relentlessly, one after another. Things happen too slowly. But the august Queen of Heaven is present, and the power of the Lord is in her hands. She scatters her enemies like mist. She clothes the venerable old man of Rome in all his ancient garments. A violent hurricane will come again. Iniquity is at an end. Sin will cease. And before two full moons in the month of flowers passes, the rainbow of peace will appear on earth. The great minister will see the bride of his king dressed in festive garb. The entire world shall see a sun brighter than the flames that appeared in the upper room on Pentecost, nor shall it be seen again until the last of days. Thus ended the message from God. Don Bosco made a copy of this reflection and took it to Rome. As he explained to those who questioned him, the dream concerned the war between France and Prussia happening just then, as well as the condition of the church and the desolation that hung over Italy. Don Bosco had another copy sent to a prelate in Rome. An 1872 issue of the journal La Civiltà Cattolica mentions the aforesaid prophecy. It reports some of it verbatim, preceded by an authoritative testimony. We recall a most recent prediction, never printed and unknown to the public, which someone from northern Italy communicated to a personage in Rome on February 12, 1870. We do not know from whom it came, but we can certify that we had it in our hands before Paris was bombed by Allied Prussian forces and set on fire by communists. And we will say that it gave us wonder to see that it predicted the fall of Rome as well when such an event was not judged to be imminent nor probable. According to Don Bosco, these events appeared likely to occur around 1874 if new iniquities did not emerge to oppose the divine will. Later, when he was questioned about the fulfillment of his dream, Don Bosco answered that perhaps these events would not occur again because the Lord, in his mercy, sometimes likes to hint at which path mankind might take in this or that circumstance to get out of some difficulty and nothing more. Thank you for listening to probably the most incredible prophecy from St. John Bosco's life. And if you enjoy these videos, why not consider becoming a monthly promoter of St. John Bosco? It would really help us out a lot. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. Let's go.
to further study the fulfillment of St. John Bosco's prophecy, research the Siege of Paris and the capture of Rome during the Franco-Prussian War, 1870 to 1871. Did you know that St. John Bosco had to deal with a terrible cholera epidemic in Turin? In fact, this was such a momentous event in his life that I'm going to dedicate three episodes this week to discussing his good works during that time. I think we can all learn a lot from it. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco told his oratory boys from the pulpit in a tone that was quite unusual for him, the cause of death is undoubtedly sin. If you put yourselves in the state of grace and commit no mortal sin, I assure you that cholera will not touch even one of you. But if anyone remains an enemy of God, or worse yet, dares to offend him gravely, from that moment on, I could no longer stand by him or any other member of the oratory. It's impossible to describe the effect produced by these memorable words. From that evening into the following day, all the young men of the hospice, with several others from the oratory, went to confession and Holy Communion. From then on, the boy's conduct was so edifying and exemplary that no one could have asked more of them. They perfected their prayer, attendance at the sacraments, work, obedience, charity, and general fear of God. They were so afraid of committing sins that as soon as one said a word or acted in a way that seemed to offend God, he quickly ran to confide it to Don Bosco and ask him for advice and suitable penance. Especially in the evening, after prayers, everyone would surround Don Bosco to express their doubts or tell him about their minor faults that day. Often Don Bosco would stand for an hour or more to hear their problems. He would reassure, comfort, console them, and then send them to bed contented and peaceful. In this way, each young man showed that they wanted to keep a clear conscience. Meanwhile, the number of cholera cases in Turin and the suburbs increased daily. On hearing that the epidemic had broken out near the oratory, Don Bosco rushed to help the victims of this plague. His mother, Mama Margarita, had shown great concern for her son's life on other occasions, but this time she declared it his duty to face the contagion. The civil authorities had hastily created infirmaries to treat those without assistance or care in their homes. Two of these makeshift hospitals were established in Borgo San Donato, which was then still part of the parish of Borgo Dora. Opening the facilities was easy, but it was difficult to staff them and provide nurses willing to serve those suffering from the plague. Everyone feared contracting the sickness, and they refused to expose their lives. Don Bosco was inspired with an idea to help solve the problem. For several days and nights, he and Don Alessonati had assisted those sick whenever possible. After attending to the needs of the sick, Don Bosco gathered his young men. He explained the miserable state of the cholera victims and told them that many died for lack of prompt and necessary aid. He told them how caring for the sick would be a great act of charity. Our Lord would perceive such service as if they had performed it for himself. Don Bosco also told them that in all epidemics, generous Christians had always braved death on the side of the victims to serve and help them in body and soul. He told the young men that the mayor had called for nurses and aides, and that he and others had already responded. 
Don Bosco concluded his entreaty by expressing his desire for some of the boys to volunteer for this work of mercy. His invitation did not fall on deaf ears. The boys showed themselves worthy sons of such a father. Fourteen volunteered at once. A few days later, another thirty followed. On one hand, consider the terror that overwhelmed people in those days to such an extent that many, including the doctors themselves, fled from the city and many of the sick were abandoned by their relatives. But on the other, reflect on young people's age and natural timidity to get involved in such cases. We cannot fail to admire this noble purpose of Don Bosco's sons, who went so gladly to care for the sick that he wept in relief. Before he put them on this battlefield, the good father prescribed rules for them to follow so that their work would benefit the body and soul of the victims. The terrible disease of cholera generally had two stages. The onslaught, which was usually fatal if it didn't pass too quickly, and the reaction, which could be survived if caregivers quickly restored circulation through massages and applications of heat, especially to the extremities. Don Bosco turned the young men into improvised emergency doctors. He added some spiritual suggestions, namely allowing no patient to die without receiving the last rites. Properly instructed, the students were dispersed to makeshift clinics and private houses. Some searched for unknown victims, while others remained on standby for emergencies. As soon as the community learned that the boys of the oratory had volunteered to nurse the sick and that they were excellent nurses, the demand for them multiplied. After a week passed, the boys were always on the move. Some days they barely had time to grab a bite of bread as they rushed from one sick person's house to another. At night there was constant coming and going. They spent many sleepless nights caring for the sick or praying in vigil without rest but they were always happy and content. At first, before each student went on his charitable mission, he would equip himself with a small bottle of vinegar or a dose of camphor or some similar sanitizer. Then, after returning home, he would wash and use these products to disinfect himself. But later, there wasn't even time to take these precautions. At that point, the students placed themselves in the care of divine providence. The care provided by the oratory boys was not only medical, the students were also able to provide materially for many of the sick. Many victims lacked sheets, blankets, nightshirts, and other necessities. Seeing such a shortage, the boys would go tell Mama Margarita, and then she would go to the wardrobe in the oratory and remove and deliver the items according to the need. To one sick person, she would give a shirt, to another a blanket, to this one a sheet, to that one a towel, and so forth. Soon, nothing remained except the boy's clothing and bedding. One day, a boy came to her saying that one of the sick people was struggling in a miserable bed without sheets and asked her for something to cover the patient. The charitable woman found nothing more than a tablecloth. Take it, said the pitiful woman. Do as best as you can for your poor sick man. The boy joyfully took the tablecloth to his patient. But requests for relief continued. Poor mothers of families came asking for clothing for their daughters, or girls came requesting clothing for their mothers or other female patients. 
Margarita donated her bonnets, shawls, and dresses until she had no clothes left besides those she wore. One day, a person came asking for a few more items to cover the sufferers. Margarita had nothing left to give. Then she was struck with an idea. She took a tablecloth from the altar table, an amice, and an alb, and she gave them away with Don Bosco's permission. Thus, the sacred linens covered the limbs of Jesus Christ, for such are the poor little ones who were sick. Don Bosco wrote on a sheet of paper, Can there be a more worthy use for the Eucharistic vessels destined to contain the Redeemer's blood than buying back for the second time those whom the Redeemer already bought with this same blood? Let us recall that St. Ambrose was forced to sell sacred communion vessels to ransom slaves. Thank you all for watching and subscribing, and please come back Wednesday for our second episode on the cholera epidemic. There's still so many more things to discuss. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Did you know that St. John Bosco performed many good works during a cholera epidemic in Turin? He also had to deal with conspiracy theories. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Don Bosco was appointed spiritual director of an emergency clinic in the parish of Borgo Dora, where St. Peter's Retreat is now and extends into an adjoining house. He and Don Alessonati were always ready to run wherever they were called. They took turns until there was too much work to do at a time for only one of them. They didn't think about food or sleep or rest, and Don Bosco threw himself into the fight without even worrying about catching the disease. He was on call day and night. He only rested for an hour or two on some sofa or chair, and sleeping in a bed was out of the question. He went with the older youths to visit the sick, bringing medicines, money, and supplies. He couldn't stay long because many needed his priestly ministry. He would leave one of his boys when he saw that a household had no one to help. The young men spent many nights in the homes of the sick. Don Bosco encouraged them with admirable calm, praising their goodwill and never showing the slightest impatience. Once, cleric Francesia was attending to a sick man. Seeing the patient failing, the cleric ran outside, jumped over the courtyard wall, and called for Don Bosco, who had just recently returned home. Don Bosco went immediately, but the patient was already dead. Don Bosco didn't complain that he was forced to get up at that hour unnecessarily, nor did he even rebuke the young man who had delayed calling him until it was too late. Quietly, he simply returned to his room. But the charity of the boys rivaled that of Don Bosco. In the beginning, they had to overcome their fear. One of the 14 boys who first volunteered entered the clinic and approached the beds of the cholera sufferers. Seeing the condition of those stricken by the terrible disease, particularly upon seeing their hollowed-out eyes burning with fever, and especially seeing them die, frightened him so much that he fainted. Fortunately, Don Bosco was with him and, noticing his dilemma, kept the boy from falling to the ground. He carried him outside and revived him with a drink. Otherwise, the poor boy would have been judged to have come down with cholera and might have been put together with other sick people. The boys needed the courage to work in those places of pain and death. 
In addition to the unbearable sufferings that afflicted so many poor sick people, the caregivers found it heartrending to see their patients, as soon as they died, almost immediately transported to the nearby morgue and from there to the cemetery, where they were quickly buried. Sometimes the bodies seemed to be still alive, yet they were already placed among the dead. So imagine what cold-bloodedness, or for that matter, what mental fortitude the caregivers needed to possess to witness such scenes without fear. They had to overcome the fear of the disease, death, and the opposition of the people. The clinics were located in the suburbs and were frowned upon by the sick and those who lived nearby. The sick people generally feared that patients in those clinics would die faster and indeed that they were made to die by means of poisoned water. The residents feared, not without reason, that the clinics would corrupt the air and endanger their lives. However, because the residents couldn't prevent the clinics from opening there, some argued for closing them or rendering them unusable by vile and illegal means. In Borgo San Donato, as elsewhere, a mob of neighborhood children began terrorizing those who came to serve the hospitalized there. They imagined that no more patients would be brought to the clinic if no one dared to go and take care of them. To this end, the evil-minded locals began by making threats and then resorted to assaulting and throwing stones. Anyone trying to get to or from the nearby clinic, especially at night, needed a police escort. One of the first evenings, two of the oratory boys and the cleric Michele Rua had a terrible time of it. As they left the clinic, walking along a dark slope toward the oratory, they heard an uproar of shouts and whistles mixed with cries of, Get them! Get them! The local fools threw stones, which were plentiful in that area. The two boys owed their escape to the swiftness of their legs and the timely arrival of two guards and Don Bosco was also stoned several times. Notwithstanding this inhuman reception, Don Bosco and the boys continued to serve in that clinic as long as they needed. The neighbor's anger eventually cooled and turned into admiration. The sick, however, had a challenging time overcoming the idea that the clinic would poison the water to kill them. In a home in Moretta, one cholera patient was convinced that the illness was the work of evil people, who spread it by bringing poisoned water with them. He placed a loaded firearm by his bed and forbade anyone who was not a family member to come into the room. He resolutely threatened to shoot any stranger. Priests who came to comfort him had to leave abruptly when he pointed his weapon at them. As he became increasingly ill, his relatives finally called Don Bosco, who knew him and was highly respected by him. Don Bosco immediately accepted the invitation, and when he reached the door, he called the patient by name. Oh, it's Don Bosco, replied the sick man. May I come in? The priest asked. Come in, I'm sure you won't bring me poisoned water. Don Bosco entered, but as soon as he crossed the threshold, the man stopped him and commanded, Open your hands. Don Bosco showed him the palm of his right hand. Show me the left as well, the sick man continued impatiently. Don Bosco opened his left. Shake your sleeves with your arms down, the man ordered. Don Bosco obliged. Do you have anything in the sack? The man asked. Don Bosco emptied his bags. Satisfied, the man said, Now come to my bed. Don Bosco heard his confession, and after a few moments, the man lost consciousness. 
Tomatis came in with another companion, wrapped him in a blanket, laid him on a stretcher, and carried him to the clinic where he died. Another rumor had spread among the populace that cholera was caused specifically by a white water source due to deadly substances that were said to be found in the water wells. Because of these and many other rumors, there were people who didn't want to even drink water anymore. Don Bosco was called to the bedside of another dying man, and after administering the sacraments to the patient, he saw that the man was burning with a great thirst, yet he didn't want to drink. Don Bosco prepared a pitcher of water for him and told him to drink it whenever he wanted without fear. Don Bosco left a boy to serve him through the night and to visit others who were also ill. After a while, seeing the sick man getting worse, that young man offered him the water to drink. The sick man, oblivious to Don Bosco's assurances, refused and even glared at the boy. Just take it and drink, urged the young man, handing him the pitcher. What are you saying to me? Leave this room immediately, said the sick man. Drink and you'll feel relief, replied the boy. Why don't you just leave, cried the sick man. Then, in a frenzy, he jumped from his bed and staggered to get a rifle next to the door. The young man rapidly left by the stairs, and the fate of the sick man is left unrecorded. These were some of the insane events that St. John Bosco had to navigate through during this cholera epidemic. And if you'd like to hear the final episode about his good works during this time, please come back Friday. In the meantime, you might check out this playlist that I've put together about his life. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. Not many people know that St. John Bosco had to deal with a terrible cholera epidemic. It was so bad that it even affected the produce. Let's see how he navigated these struggles. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. There were several times when Don Bosco helped to transport cholera patients. On the morning of August 16th, the Feast of St. Rock, who is the co-patron saint of Turin, Don Bosco approached the oratory. He saw a young man devouring a large melon while sitting on the bank of a ditch in the Filippi brothers' fields. Take it easy, Don Bosco said. The melon might be contaminated and might hurt you, because cholera could be spread by contaminated produce, among many other ways. This melon tastes so good that it can't harm me, replied that young man. I'm the one causing it harm. Don Bosco again urged him to stop, but the man wouldn't. So he went on to the oratory, but had not yet reached his room when a boy came to tell him that a poor workman was in pain in the meadow and was asking for help. Don Bosco immediately went to the young man, but it was the same young man. He had not listened to Don Bosco's advice and was now groaning and writhing with half his melon still sitting beside him. Some onlookers were watching him in fear from afar, and no one dared to approach. Don Bosco tried to comfort him and asked, What's the matter with you? I don't know, the youth said. I feel cold and I have a chill in my bones. Don Bosco felt the young man's hands, which were like ice, a sure symptom of the deadly disease of cholera. So he invited the poor man to get up and come with him, but despite his efforts, the youth had to sit down, saying, My legs no longer support me. Don Bosco looked about for help and providentially, Tomatis was passing by. The two lifted the sick man under the armpits and set off. For some time, the youth could only drag his feet as he tried to walk, 
but at some point he was assailed by the cramps and pains of cholera so severely that he dropped to the ground like a body that was already dead. Don Bosco and Tamati gripped each other's wrists to form a seat for him and put him upon it. Where are you taking me? The poor man asked. Nearby to the house of a friend of mine where you will be looked after, answered Don Bosco. He didn't clarify that they were headed right to the medical clinic because that might frighten him. Meanwhile, as they went along, the sick man dropped the melon he still held in his hands and wanted to stop and pick it up. Seeing that Don Bosco was tired, Tomatis lifted the sick man across his shoulders and carried him the rest of the way. Don Bosco followed, supporting the poor man from behind so he wouldn't be too uncomfortable. At the clinic, the nurses saw the gravity of the case and immediately prepared a hot bath. In the meantime, Don Bosco invited the young man to confess and prepare himself to die. With little to no preparation, the poor man confessed as best he could, but with true repentance. Immediately, he became delirious, talking about his melon and eight pennies hidden in his sack. He feared that some thieving hand would take his belongings away from him. Don Bosco asked if he wished them to keep his coins for him, and the young man calmed down and gave him his little treasure, saying, Keep them for me until I am cured. Meanwhile, the doctor arrived. The young man was put in a hot bath and massaged, but it was all in vain, for he died by noon. The contagious disease required continuous sacrifices of corporal and spiritual charity, and Don Bosco could hardly meet all the needs. At times, only the youngest, weakest, or the most timid were available to help whenever the boys volunteered to serve as nurses. Don Bosco needed helpers to accompany him wherever he was urgently needed. One morning, he had to go to the clinic to anoint patients with holy oil. He wanted someone to carry the sacred vessels while administering the sacrament for convenience. But none of the young men who remained in the oratory dared to accompany him. After some had refused, Don Bosco invited John Caliero, who was then playing with his companions. Do you want to go with me? Don Bosco asked. Let's go, replied Caliero resolutely, and immediately they set out. Then, having reached the clinic, Caliero helped Don Bosco prepare to administer the holy oil and made the responses during the prayers as they went from one bed to another. A doctor saw the young man and said, Don Bosco, what are you doing? This young man can't stay here. You're being very careless. No, doctor, replied Don Bosco. Neither he nor I fear cholera. Nothing will happen. Caliero could match any skilled nurse in both courage and skill. So could John Baptist and Frosty, who wrote, I had the good fortune to accompany Don Bosco on several visits to the sick. I was only 14 years old, and when I offered my services as a nurse, I felt great tranquility arising from my hope of being saved, which Don Bosco instilled in his pupils. I was also comforted by Don Bosco's charity. I experienced such tenderness to see how he induced the sick with his friendliness and charity to receive the sacraments and how he reassured them about the faith of the poor children and those who would remain without support. One day I saw him return to the oratory, leading as many as 16 children he had collected from households here and there. These were children whose parents had orphaned them. So he kept them all with him and then introduced them to either studies or a trade according to their aptitude. 
These were not the only ones he tearfully drew by the hand and delivered into the loving arms of divine providence. A few days later, the examples of Caliero and Fossi and others motivated those who had not yet found the courage to volunteer. Don Bosco returned from the city, and those who had remained in the oratory huddled around him. Finally, he exclaimed, Who wants to go to the clinic and into homes to assist the cholera patients? Me, me, they all shouted, bursting with charity. He then addressed that question directly to Felix Ravilio. Felix was the only one who didn't volunteer because he wanted Don Bosco to command him to volunteer. With a smile, Don Bosco seemed to agree to leave him alone. But as if he read Felix's heart, he quickly chose Felix to accompany him. Called by Don Bosco, the boy went to work, assisting six cholera patients until they died. John Turki and Carlo Gastini also participated in these vigils with Don Bosco. But cleric Rua, cleric Giuseppe Buzzetti, and cleric Francesca stood out in a special way because of their continuous service. Don Bosco prayed continually for the health of all his children, and Our Lady granted him his request, proving her maternal protection by way of cleric Francesca. The disease had fiercely struck down the mother of this good cleric. Her son Francesca ran home and found her in a state that gave him little hope. Hastening back to the oratory, he called Don Bosco, who quickly went to hear her confession. She lived opposite the Church of Our Lady of Consolation. Don Bosco stood in front of the column of the Immaculate Conception in the square, uncovered his head, and showed cleric Francesca the statue of Mary. Do you see her? Don Bosco asked him. She will heal your mother if you promise to consecrate yourself to spreading devotion to her when you become a priest. The cleric accepted. Don Bosco then went to the sick woman, where he consoled her, heard her confession, and administered extreme unction. The doctor said the only remedy for this illness was bleeding, which was a popular procedure at that time, where a doctor would pierce a sick person's arm and allow blood to run out for a while. The practice was thought to rebalance the body and promote recovery at that time. The neighborhood women who had crowded into the room criticized the doctor's order and insisted that the sick woman not allow herself to be bled. The doctor said, I never draw blood unless the sick person allows it, and he left. Cleric Francesca then cleared the room. Filled with faith in the word of Don Bosco, he asked his mother, what shall we do then? The good woman said, what is your opinion, my son? I think we should do what the doctor suggested, he answered. Then call him back. The son caught up with the doctor at the foot of the stairs and begged him to return, assuring him that his mother fully deferred to his advice. The doctor bled the woman five or six times, and she miraculously recovered and lived another 21 years. Thank you all so much for watching this three-part series on the cholera epidemic in turn. And if you'd like to become a monthly promoter of St. John Bosco, please click on the link I've put on the screen. It would really help us out a lot. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Ready to go? Let's go.